Section 24 of Mrs. Shelley. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mrs. Shelley by Lucy Maddox Brown Rossetti. Chapter 14, Part 2. Literary Work. The travellers reach England, and Elizabeth is sought out by the Lady Cecil, who had been much struck by her devotion to her father. Elizabeth is invited to stay with Lady Cecil, as she much needs rest in her turn. During a pleasant time of repose near Hastings, Elizabeth hears Lady Cecil talk much of her brother Gerard, but it is not till he too arrives on a visit that she acknowledges to herself that he is really the same Mr. Neville whom she had met and from whom she had received such kindness. Nor had Gerard spoken of Elizabeth. He had been too much drawn towards her, as his life also is darkened by a mystery. They spend a short, tranquil time together, when a letter announces the approaching arrival of Sir Boyville Neville, the young man's father. Although Lady Cecil called Gerard her brother, they were not really related. Sir Boyville had married the mother of Lady Cecil, who was the offspring of a previous marriage. Gerard Neville at once determines to leave the house, but before going refers Elizabeth to his sister, Lady Cecil, to hear the particulars of the tragedy which surrounds him. The story told is this. Sir Boyville Neville was a man of the world, with all the too frequent disbelief in women and selfishness. This led to his becoming very tyrannical when he married, at the age of forty-five, Alethea, a charming young woman who had recently lost her mother, and whose father, a retired naval officer of limited means, would not hear of her refusing so good an offer as Sir Boyville's. After their marriage, Sir Boyville, feeling himself too fortunate in having secured so charming and beautiful a wife, kept out of all society, and after living abroad for some years, took her to an estate he possessed in Cumberland. They lived there shut out from all the world, except for trips which he took himself to London, or elsewhere, whenever ennui assailed him. They had, at the time we are approaching, two charming children, a beautiful boy of some ten years, and a little girl of two. At this time, while Alethea, perfectly happy with her children, and quite contented with her retirement, which she perceived took away the jealous tortures of her husband, he left home for a week, drawn out to two months, on one of his periodical visits to the capital. Lady Neville's frequent letters concerning her home and her children were always cheerful and placid and the time for her husband's return was fixed. He arrived at the appointed hour in the evening. The servants were at the door to receive him, but in an instant alarm prevailed. Lady Neville and her son Gerard were not with him. They had left the house some hours before to walk in the park, and had not since been seen or heard of. An unprecedented occurrence. The alarm was raised. The country searched in all directions, but ineffectually, during a fearful tempest. Ultimately the poor boy was found unconscious on the ground, drenched to the skin. On being taken home, and his father questioning him, all that could be heard were his cries, "'Come back, Mama! Stop! Stop for me!' Nothing else but the tossings of fever. Once again, "'Then she has come back,' he cried. "'That man did not take her quite away. The carriage drove here at last.' The story slowly elicited from the child on his gaining strength was this. On his going for a walk with his mother in the park, she took the key of a gate which led into a lane. A gentleman was waiting outside. Gerard had never seen him before, but he heard his mother call him Rupert. They walked together through the lane accompanied by the child, and talked earnestly. 
She wept, and the boy was indignant. When they reached a crossroad, a carriage was waiting. On approaching it, the gentleman pulled the child's hand from hers, lifted her in, sprang in after her, and the coachman drove like the wind, leaving the child to hear his mother shriek in agony, "'My child, my son!' Nothing more could be discovered. The country was ransacked in vain. The servants only stated that ten days ago a gentleman called, asked for Lady Neville, and was shown in to her. He remained some two hours, and on his leaving it was remarked that she had been weeping. He had called again, but was not admitted. One letter was found, signed Rupert, begging for one more meeting, and if that were granted he would leave her in his just revenge for ever. Otherwise he could not tell what the consequences might be on her husband's return that night. In answer to this letter, she went, but with her child, which clearly proved her innocent intention. Months passed with no fresh result, till her husband, beside himself with wounded pride, determined to be avenged by obtaining a bill of divorce in the House of Lords, and producing his son Gerard as evidence against his lost mother, whom he so dearly loved. The poor child by this time, by dint of thinking and weighing every word he could remember, such as, "'I grieve deeply for you, Rupert. My good wishes are all I have to give you,' became more and more convinced that his mother was taken forcibly away, and would return at any moment if she were able. He only longed for the time when he should be old enough to go and seek her through the world. His father was relentless, and the child was brought before the House of Lords to repeat the evidence he had innocently given against her. But when called on to speak in that awful position, no word could be drawn from him except, She is innocent. The House was moved by the brave child's agony, and resolved to carry on the case without him, from the witnesses whom he had spoken to, and finally they pronounced a decree of divorce in Sir Boyville's favour. The struggle and agony of the poor child are admirably described, as also his subsequent flight from his father's house, and wanderings round his old home in Cumberland. In his fruitless search for his mother he reached a deserted sea-coast, after wandering about for two months barefoot, and almost starving but for the used milk and bread given him by the cottagers, he was recognized. His father, being informed, had him seized and brought home, where he was confined and treated as a criminal. His state became so helpless that even his father was at length moved to some feeling of self-restraint, and finally took Gerard with him abroad, when he was first seen at Baden by Elizabeth and Pockner. There also he first met his sister by affinity, Lady Cecil. With her he lost somewhat his defiant tone, and felt that for his mother's sake he must not appear to others as lost in sullenness and despair. He now talked of his mother, and reasoned about her, but although he had much interested Lady Cecil, he did not convince her really of his mother's innocence, so much did all circumstances weigh against her. But now, during Elizabeth's visit to Lady Cecil, a letter is received by Gerard and his father informing them that one Gregory Hoskins believed he could give some information. He was at Lancaster. Sir Boyville, only anxious to hush up the matter by which his pride had suffered, hastened to prevent his son from taking steps to reopen the subject. This Hoskins was originally a native of the district round Drumore, Neville's home, and had emigrated to America at the time of Sir Boyville's marriage. At one time, years ago, he met a man named Osborne, who confided to him how he had gained money before coming to America by helping a gentleman to carry off a lady, and how terribly the affair ended, as the lady got drowned in a river near which they had placed her, while nearly dead from fright, on the dangerous coast of Cumberland. 
on returning to england and hearing the talk about the nevilles in his native village this old story came to his mind and he wrote his letter neville on hearing this instantly determined to proceed to mexico trace out osborne and bring him to accuse his mother's murderer all these details were written by elizabeth to her beloved father after some delay one line entreated her to come to him instantly for one day falkner could not ignore the present state of things the mutual attraction of his elizabeth and of gerard yet how with all he knew could that be suffered to proceed never except by eternal separation from his adored child but this should be done he would now tell her his story he could not speak but he wrote it and now she must come and receive it from him he told of all his solitary unloved youth the miseries and tyranny of school to the unprotected a reminiscence of shelley how on emerging from childhood one gleam of happiness entered his life in the friendship of a lady an old friend of his mother's who had one lovely daughter of the happy innocent time spent in their cottage during holidays of the dear lady's death of her daughter's despair then how he was sent off to india of the letters he wrote to the daughter alethea letters unanswered as the father the naval officer intercepted all of his return after years to england his one hope that which had buoyed him up through years of constancy to meet and marry his only love for that he felt she was and must remain he recounted his return and the news lie received his one rash visit to her to judge for himself whether she was happy this from her manner he could not feel in spite of her delight in her children his mad request to see her mad plot and still madder execution of it till he had her in his arms dashing through the country through storm and thunder unable to tell whether she lived or died the first moment of pause the efforts to save the ebbing life in a ruined hut the few minutes absence to seek materials for fire the return to find her a floating corpse in the wild little river flowing to the sea the rescue of her body from the waves her burial on the seashore and his own subsequent life of despair saved twice by elizabeth all this was told to the son to whom falkner denounced himself as his mother's destroyer he named the spot where the remains would be found and now what was left to be done only to wait a little while sir boyville and gerard neville proved his words and traced out the grave an inquest was held and falkner apprehended a few days passed and then elizabeth found her father gone and by degrees it was broken to her that he was in carlisle jail on the charge of murder she who had not feared the dangers and grease of war and fever was not to be deterred now she who believed in his innocence no minutes were needed to decide her to go straight to carlisle and remain as near as she could to the dear father who had rescued and cared for her when deserted gerard who was with his father when the bones were exhumed at the spot indicated soon realized the new situation his passion for justice to his mother did not deaden his feelings for others he felt that falkner's story was true and though nothing could restore his mother's life her honor was intact sir boyville would leave no stone unturned to be revenged rightly or wrongly on the man who had assailed his domestic peace but gerard saw elizabeth gave what consolation he could and determined to set off at once to america to seek osborne as the only witness who could exculpate falkner from the charge of murder after various difficulties osborne was found in england where he had returned in terror of being taken in america as the accomplice in the murder with great difficulty he is brought to give evidence for all his thoughts and fears are for himself but at length when all hopes seem failing he is induced by elizabeth to give his evidence 
which fully confirms Wagner's statement. At length the day of trial came. The news of liberty arrived. Not guilty. Who can imagine the effect but those who have passed innocently through the ordeal? Once more all are united. Gerard has to remain for the funeral of his father, who had died affirming his belief, which in fact he had always entertained, in Faulkner's innocence. Lady Cecil had secured for Elizabeth the companionship of Mrs. Raby, her relation on the father's side. She takes Faulkner and Elizabeth home to the beautiful ancestral Bella Forest. Here a time of rest and happiness ensues. Those so much tried by adversity would not let real happiness escape for a chimera. Honor being restored, love and friendship remained, and Gerard, Elizabeth, and Faulkner felt that now they ought to remain together, death not having disunited them. Too much space may appear to be given here to one romance, but it seems just to show the scope of Mary's imaginative conception. There are certainly both imagination and power in carrying it out. It is true that the ideas seem founded, to some extent, on Godwin's Caleb Williams, the man passing through life with a mystery. The similar names of Faulkner and Falkland may even be meant to call attention to this fact. The three-volume form, in this as in many novels, seems to detract from the strength of the work in parts, the second volume being noticeably drawn out here and there. It may be questioned also whether the form adopted in this as in many romances of giving the early history by way of narrative told by one of the dramatis personae to another is the desirable one a point to which we have already adverted to in relation to frankenstein can it be true to nature to make one character give a description over a hundred pages long repeating at length word for word long conversations which he has never heard marking the changes of colour which he has not seen and all this with a minuteness which even the firmest memory and the most loquacious tongue could not recall does not this give an unreality to the style incompatible with art which ought to be the mainspring of all imaginative work. This, however, is not Mrs. Shelley's error alone, but is traceable through many masterpieces. The author, the creator, who sees the workings of the soul of his characters, has naturally memory and perception for all. Yet Mary Shelley, in this as in most of her work, has great insight into character. Elizabeth's grandfather, in his dotage, is quite a photograph from life. Old Oswig Raby, who was more shriveled with narrowness of mind than with age, but who felt himself in his house the oldest in England, of more importance than aught else he knew of. His daughter-in-law, the widow of his eldest son, is also well drawn, a woman of upright nature, who can acknowledge the faults of the family and try to retrieve them, and who finally does her best to atone for the past. End of chapter 14, part 2